All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the second episode of Adventures in Black Cinema. My name is Desmond Thorne. For everyone who is here for the first time, uh, welcome, welcome, glad to have you. This is a podcast where we will be taking a journey through the vast world of Black film, and each episode will be a different adventure, and we will get into the nitty-gritty of a different film every week. This week, our episode is called Adventures in Soundtracks and Sisterhood. And uh, as I said before, we're going to be talking about Waiting to Exhale, a classic film from 1995. Um, but first, before we start to dig on in, I've been thinking a lot at this point in quarantine as things are starting to reopen and such. I've been not thinking really about my uh, sexual past or the lack of my sexual present. I've actually been thinking a lot more about my sexual future. Like, what is that going to even look like? We're at the point of this shit where I'm having dreams about hugging people. And uh, I've never had dreams about hugging someone before or hugging people in general. So things are feeling pretty dire. I feel as if, not necessarily that I've forgotten how to do things. They do, after all, say that it's like riding a bicycle. But have you ever seen someone attempting to ride a bicycle after they have them for like 15 years? And I'm not saying it's been 15 years since I've had sex, obviously. It's, you know, but still, man... It feels like a long fucking time since like March or probably, let's be realistic, February. So, um, you know, choosing Waiting to Exhale as the film this week was actually very cleansing for me to watch other people go through uh, issues with men, issues with men. Um, I feel like my whole life is just one big issue with men. Um, and uh, in that very vein, I would like to uh, introduce something I like to call trust and believe. Now come on, I got to go. me. I promise, I promise, Ruby D, that I won't lie to you with this recommendation that I have of a film that may have you know, fallen a little bit off your radar, may have slipped in between the cracks, let's say. Um, and this is a film that I'm recommending called The Watermelon Woman. The Watermelon Woman is a film from 1996. Um, it is directed by Cheryl Dune, who also stars in the film. And fun fact, this is the first Black lesbian feature film 
ever made. And it's about a young black filmmaker who also works at a video store. And she is starting to do her own adventure in black cinema by digging into a fictional actor, uh, fictional in our world, but real in her world, um, who was known for playing a mammy type role known as the watermelon woman. And so Cheryl's character is uh, looking for more information about this woman, kind of starting to learn about the origins of her and where she may be, where her family may be now. And at the same time, she's balancing this new relationship that she has with this queer white woman. It's very interesting. It's very 90s. It's very fun. Um, It's very important. And I feel like also does a really interesting job at... um, not only digging into the mammy stereotype, but also um, talking about interracial relationships in a way that isn't kind of like hitting you over the head with it, just kind of being real and relaxed with it. Very good film. You can check it out for free on the Criterion channel. It's also streaming on Canopy and it's also streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And I think we should definitely do an episode on this film one day. It's definitely worth checking out. It's a fucking part of history. And it's also Pride Month. Um, There is a lot going on right now to the point where, like, I haven't even really felt like celebrating Pride Month. But if you're going to do it, include Black narratives and include especially also Black trans narratives. Um, Just do your research on the reason why Pride exists and why we are able to celebrate the way that we have in the past. All right. I think I'm ready. Are you ready to get in to the nitty gritty of waiting to exhale? You are here for one reason, one reason only, to learn, to learn, to learn. So like I said before, This film was released in 1995 and was directed by Forrest Whitaker. Yes. The Forrest Whitaker directed this film. Um, It was the first film that he ever directed, um, feature film that he ever directed. Um, And, you know, he's known for being a really good actor and he is an excellent fucking actor, but he does some weird shit in terms of directing this film that I'll get to in a minute, but those things still don't get in the way of this film being like an absolute fucking classic. Like, I remember my mom being so hyped for this movie when it came out and her friends being so hyped for it. The hype lasted years and years. Um, Had this definitely in our VHS collection of black films. Um, you know, the iconic Angela Bassett image of her lighting her husband's clothes on fire in his car is just iconic. The soundtrack is iconic. These four women behind me are fucking icons. So though he does some weird shit and there are some weird things in the movie, like you can't fight the opinion of black mothers in the 90s. It's a fucking dope movie, you know, at the end of the day, uh, with a fucking incredible soundtrack. Um, But before we get into all of that, 
I need to hold my own fucking horses real quick. I need to tell you what the film is about, in case you don't already know. Um, it's about four friends, four black women living in Phoenix, Arizona. Interesting location. Uh, you see a lot of black films taking place in New York and Los Angeles and the South, because that's generally, you know, where we be. But I love black films that take place in uh, spots like this, where you don't necessarily think of seeing us, but it kind of just reminds you that like, we are everywhere. And uh, that's definitely something that I want to do as a filmmaker with one of my films. Like, I want to shoot a black film like in fucking like Colorado or like Utah, like somewhere in the fucking mountains, just get a fuck ton of black people out there and just spend like a month and a half shooting a movie. Every single person in this movie will be black. We're gonna fill up one of these towns with just a bunch of black people and it's gonna be lit and it's gonna be like something that people haven't really seen before. Something that people aren't fucking used to. And uh, that's an aspect that I love about this movie. These four friends in Phoenix, Arizona. And it's really about, you know, their individual struggles with the men in their lives, but also just like the extreme sisterhood that is felt in this movie is just like beyond. Um, I think that a lot of narratives thrown at you from white people and from the media and from even stories just made by men who don't get it, um, you see a lot of narratives of women who are close but they secretly don't like each other or they're just catty or they're bitchy to each other. Um, I think of a moment in Widows where uh, Cynthia Arrivo throws shade to Viola Davis my friend leans over to me. She's like, why is that necessary? Why do you have to include this one little bit of Black women just like not getting along? And I think that this film is the perfect antithesis to that. You see so much support and love and that is what makes this movie fucking beautiful. And, you know, this is before fucking Sex in the City. This is before Girlfriend. This is before Insecure. This is before seeing a lot of narratives where you are seeing four women who are very, very successful, all four women in Waiting to Excel have great, incredible jobs um, and are very successful at them. And uh, this is before you see all these shows and media with like all these units. This was really a very, very big door opener. Um, so let's talk about who plays these four women. Um, oh, I almost forgot. My mom, I told you, she's a fan of Waiting to Exhale, right? So we obviously have the soundtrack CD floating around somewhere, the VHS is around somewhere, and of course, also got the book. The book, released in 1992. Um, this is, yes, based on a book by Miss Terry McMillan, and she also helped write the screenplay. The four lead actors in this movie are, of course, Whitney Houston, Angela Bassett, Layla Rashawn, and Loretta Devine. And you also have some people up in here that are recognizable, such as Gregory Hines, who gives a nice, wonderful performance, a nice, uh, fun counterpart to Loretta Devine, a man that uh, I would want in my life. He's just so kind and understanding. Um, and that's fucking hard to find. That's how you know 
he's a fictional character. Michael T. Williamson, who you should recognize from many, many films. Uh, you may have seen him at some point in a movie talking about the different kinds of shrimp that there are on shrimp boats. On a good day, you can catch over 100 pounds of shrimp. He is so funny in this, um, playing one of the men that Layla Rashawn gets involved with. We have Wendell Pierce, who is also known for being in... When you walk through the garden, watch your back. That's right, this movie has a nigga from the wire in it. Like I said, science has shown and proven that three quarters of all black films will contain a nigga from the wire, and this film fits the bill. Wendell is super funny in this. Another man that Layla Rashawn is with at some point in the movie, and he really shows his like early promise as an actor in this role. Um, I think this role starts off as very fat shamey, uh, something that you just see a lot in films in general, but specifically in the 90s, like, god damn, how they get on fat people is just like really, really insane. But this character does, after that uh, initial kind of like fat context, kind of starts to become a more fully shaped character, which is Nice to see. Also, there are two people who are quite famous who are in this movie that are not credited. They are not in the credits of this movie. Uh, that is Giancarlo Esposito playing a uh, very fleshed out gay character for a movie in the 90s. Because let me tell you, there's lots of homophobic jokes and just like really stereotypical gay characters in uh, films in general, but specifically, and I mean, Definitely also that carries over into black film in uh, this time period before and after, unfortunately. Um, this movie actually has uh, in the hair salon that um, Loretta Devine owns, there's this one character who is just like so obviously probably played by a straight man or if he's gay was told to just like, oh, do more of that. Um, it's just a very stereotypical presentation of a gay man. And then a few scenes later, you see Giancarlo Esposito walk in, and because he's a good fucking actor, give us a nice, well-rounded gay character for just one scene. But it's a beautiful thing to see in this movie that's made in 1995. Um, and then Wesley Snipes is in this and does some really, really beautiful, amazing, gorgeous work with Angela Bassett. Again, to the point where I'm just like... You know these men are fictional because they're just... A couple of these dudes are just so great, so perfect, and uh, I want them for myself, for my own. Because um, like I said before, it's a drought, and who knows when the next rain season will come. Um, but enough about the men... That's the last time we're going to talk about them for a second. We will get back into them in a little bit, but let's talk about one of our themes this week. Let's talk about this fucking soundtrack. Okay, so we could do an entire episode of anything on any medium about this soundtrack. This soundtrack is classic. This is the time, a great, great time in our culture where soundtracks were also albums. Soundtracks are made out of 
uh, original songs that were written for the movie and that were either included in the movie and or inspired by the film. This was a great era. I mean, Boomerang, The Bodyguard, uh, The Preacher's Wife. Notice that every movie that Whitney Houston was in had a great soundtrack, obviously. Um, but I mean, there's countless of them and they don't really do that anymore. The most recent example would be Black Panther. But I was actually disappointed at how many of those great songs on the soundtrack were not in the movie at all. But this movie is a great example of like pretty much all of these songs, if not all of them, uh, from the soundtrack album are in the film. The soundtrack was produced by Babyface, so it has lots of lovely R&B 90s sounds that I miss with every core of my being. And it was also executive produced by Forrest Whitaker, the director of the film. And Babyface does the score of the movie and does a nice job at weaving in, um, especially uh, the song Exhale Shoop Shoop into the score. Um, Yeah, I mean, he is just, he's a legend. Um, Just one more legend that had a piece of this film. And um, we're talking about this album that was number one on the Billboard charts for five weeks. Like, when's the last time a soundtrack did that? It produced five top 10 singles, two of which went to number one. This soundtrack had 11 Grammy nominations. Like, it's full of bangers. And our lovely audio engineer, Matt, put together an amazing... Uh, musical journey through memory lane of four of my favorite songs in the soundtrack. So let's take a little a little trip through some of the amazing, brilliant music in Waiting to Exhale. Everyone falls in love sometimes Sometimes it's wrong And sometimes it's right For everyone Someone must fail But there comes a point when When we exhale, yeah, yeah Say Everything's 
just brings back so many memories of my parents playing that soundtrack top to bottom on the big you know system back in the day man i think that if you were to put these three you know parts of media of waiting to exhale you know being the book being the movie and being the soundtrack, I think the soundtrack will be the thing that lives on forever and ever. It's just so incredibly well produced with heart. So thank you to Babyface. Thank you to the voices you just heard. Whitney Houston, uh, Tony Braxton, and Miss Brandy. Um, If you have not somehow listened to that soundtrack in full, get into it. It's streaming everywhere. It's incredible. So my few bones to pick from this movie, like I said, come from like little weird directorial things that Forrest Whitaker did. And I can recognize them because, you know, when you're making your first film, sometimes you can kind of lean into this idea of doing something because it's cool, not necessarily because it works for the story or because it's the best choice, but it's a cool choice and it's a choice that, you know, works well enough. Um, so I can definitely, uh, see that in moments of this film, like in the beginning and also near the end, there are these strange, like weird transitional dissolves that happen that kind of look like a video demo on Windows 95 installation pack. If you know, you know, um, it looks exactly like that. And it just doesn't make sense to me, especially in something that has nothing to do with technology at all, to have those weird kind of like fizzy fades is strange. There are also some camera moves that are kind of weird. I feel like, you know, the comedy could have been sharper with someone who may have had more experience in directing something with uh, comedic aspects in it. There's also these kind of weird voiceovers that do sound like they're directly from the book, which is cool in some ways, but also like when you write a screenplay, you don't want it to sound exactly like a book because they are such different mediums. And something that's interesting about this movie is that Terry McMillan uh, helped to co-write the screenplay of her book with this guy named Ronald Bass, um, who is a screenwriter who wrote like Rain Man and My Best Friend's Wedding and a bunch of movies. And, um, you know, when this happens, I can kind of understand uh, to a certain extent, you know, wanting to bring on a experienced screenwriter to help with a screenplay for someone who is not an experienced screenwriter. Because writing books and writing screenplays are very different things. Some people are good at one and not the other. Some people are good at both, you know. And that kind of brings me to the point that though this film is a classic and, you know, is so much about the sisterhood between these four women, 
there is an ever so slight male gaze to it because of the fact that it's directed by a man and also a man helped co-write the screenplay. Um, And it's not there in the way that we're usually used to seeing, which is, you know, just gratuitous sex that makes no sense and it's just like showing a woman's body for no fucking reason. It's not art and it needs to change. Uh, You don't see that in this movie. Um, You do see, though, some of the men kind of getting off the hook a little easy. Like, some of them do have naturally a comedic aspect to them. But I think that there's something to be said about, like, when a man does something horrible in this movie, you don't usually see it. You kind of hear about it from the woman's perspective. And I think sometimes uh, seeing it can make it land a little bit more. And that's not to say that we don't trust what these women are saying. We absolutely do. We follow them from top to bottom. But there's something about, you know, film being a visual medium that I kind of wanted to see a little bit more uh, detail on uh, some of these some of the fuck shit that these dudes were doing. And I say that from the perspective of being a male and knowing the kind of fuck shit that we get up to and also being gay and dating males. Like, oh my God, it's, it's, it can be a mess. It can be really bad. And uh, dudes can get up to some real fuck shit. And I kind of wanted to see more of that aspect, of course. So let's talk about these ladies and their acting. Loretta Devine and Angela Bassett are both fucking incredible in this movie. They're incredible in every single thing that they're in, and they really do lift a lot of these scenes. I feel like Angela Bassett's character um, doesn't show a lot of variety in the first part of the movie, yet Angela Bassett just still makes iconic moments out of all of it. I mean, when she's ripping the clothes out of her husband's closet, like, it's just such an epic moment. And it kind of makes me think, like, it kind of makes me think, you know, how long did that take her in real life to do in terms of, like, that actual character taking all those clothes out of that closet, putting them in a car and burning that shit? It is uh, amazing. Get your shit! Get your shit! It's just incredible. Um, Angela Bassett, uh, of course, just a flawless actor and human being. Like I said, Loretta Vine, amazing, as she always is. Brings so much heart and soul to that character. Uh, Layla Vershawn is okay in this movie. I prefer her in Why Do Fools Fall in Love, actually, which is a film that we have to decide if it gets invited to the cookout or not because it is directed by a white man. So Whitney Houston, this is not her best performance by any means in this movie, but so much of this really is her movie. I mean, she's first billed in this film. She had two top 10 singles, Exhale Shoop Shoop being one of the singles that went to number one. And um, though this is not her best performance, I think it is the most important performance of hers in terms of really getting to know what was happening in Whitney Houston's life at that time. Uh, Whitney Houston uh, suffered an overdose during the shooting of this film. Um, And the two scenes that she is the best in, and they're actually back-to-back scenes, 
one scene where she's telling off the man that she's seeing, played by Dennis Haysbert, who is also the Allstate man. Yes, he is in this movie doing his fucking thing. When she tells him off, you can just see her dealings with Bobby Brown in that. And then the very next scene where she's telling off her mom, you can absolutely see that struggle that she was dealing with in her real life. You could see that in these scenes that she had something to pull from. You know, when legendary singers like Whitney Houston are acting in films, you do as the director, um, and another bone to pick with Forrest Whitaker, you do as a director have to find, um, you have to find where they go when they perform, when they're in the studio, you know, what makes them so good in concerts, what makes them so good in music videos, like what brings that magic to their singing, to acting. And in those two moments, I think she just found something that was really real to her. And um, she's incredible in those scenes, just absolutely breathtaking. And it's really sad that we have lost someone who I've heard from all accounts, but just a really wonderful and beautiful person. Um, I was once at a uh, screening of a documentary about music video dancers in the 80s and 90s, people who danced with Michael in Michael Jackson videos, people who danced in like TLC videos, people who danced in Janet videos, Madonna videos, and Winnie Houston videos. And someone during a Q&A asked, who was the absolute coolest person? Who was your favorite person to work with? Every single one of them said Whitney Houston. So rest in peace. I wish that she was still with us. What a beautiful soul. Um, yeah, absolutely will be missed. Um, I think Waiting to Exhale actually could work in a modern context as a limited series. I would love to actually see it approach this way, get some more of that good comedy in there that's in the book, just kind of stretch out each story of each woman a little bit more. Um, and the scenes where all four of them are together and you really get a full sense of the sisterhood, those are some of the best scenes in the movie. And I'd love to see more scenes of all the friends together, having a kiki, talking about the men in their lives, talking about their own lives, and just like that unity is the most beautiful thing in the film. And I'd love to see that on a larger scale. And we've seen before that, you know, um, book adaptations work super well as limited series. Um, we've seen that work with Big Little Lies. And I think once this came out, everyone would be like, Big Little Who? Big Little Hoops? Because Waiting to Exhale would absolutely take over. I think uh, Angela Bassett would actually be a really good director uh, for the limited series. Uh, she has been doing a lot of TV directing recently. She's been doing some TV directing for 911 and for American Horror Story. And she also directed the Whitney Houston story for a lifetime. I have not seen that. And it's so interesting that she did that because the scenes where um, Angela Bassett and Whitney Houston are together in this, again, you get so much life out of Whitney Houston. And you can kind of really see the connection that they must have had on set and in doing this movie. Um, and I would love to see someone like Issa Rae... Um, come in and help Terry McMillan adapt a screenplay again. Um, I would love to see that kind of modern perspective along with Terry's perspective. I mean, Issa would absolutely kill it with the comedy and the drama. I think Insecure has such a great balance of both of those things while also being similar about like, you know, these four friends and their kind of lives. 
Um, I would just love to see that. And also, if they wanted to do a second season, they could because there's a second book called Getting to Happy that they could base it off of. And there would not be a disappointing yet well-acted second season, kind of like Big Little Lies. So in conclusion, this movie is a fucking classic. I mean, again... The there are some filmmaking issues here and there, but what's strongest in the film, the soundtrack and the sisterhood will always live on forever. Um, I think growing up having this movie around and in my life and just seeing the different black women in my life kind of unite and be together um, has just always been inspirational for me. And so, yeah, it's a fucking classic, y'all. Get into it. All right, now the moment that you've all been waiting for. All my life I had to fight. This week's You Better Act Award. And this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please. Robert Townsend in Hollywood Shuffle. This is a film from 1987. This was Robert Townsend's directorial debut, who is also an actor and is a uh, the lead in the film. Uh, I hope you're seeing a kind of thread of uh, actors directing throughout this episode. Um, this is Robert Townsend's directorial debut, and it is a journey through the life of a Black actor working in Hollywood. Um, so you see him and basically uh, over the course of auditioning for a role and then also him in different scenarios kind of playing out different characters. Um, it's still an incredibly relevant piece. As a Black actor myself, it's just like you have been in one of those waiting rooms where you just see a bunch of people that look uh, very specifically like you and uh, reading for the same uh, role of a gangster, etc. The kind of roles that white people see us in. Um, there are some homophobic jokes here and there. And like I said, that is a running theme in some of these older movies. And I think that we can discuss that in a future episode. This is one that I would love to break down one day. It's a very, very important piece of filmmaking. And Keenan Ivory Wayne's is fucking hot in it for no reason. It's really great. So Hollywood Shuffle is streaming on Amazon Prime Video right now. So check that one out. And coming up next week, we have Fast Color. Fast Color is a film uh, that was released last year starring Gugu Mbatha-Ra and Lorraine Toussaint. This film is about three generations of Black women with superpowers. Definitely put your phone away while you watch this. It's short and it's sweet and it requires your attention. It's streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime. We will have my homegirl Shay Fillmore on. She is a fellow Black film aficionado. And before we go, just some food for thought to think about. What are your ride or die soundtracks? I'm so curious to know what soundtracks will stay with you forever and will stay with you in your time capsule throughout all of time. Let us know on social media, on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Comment on the video, comment on SFB Society. Just hit us up, show us some love. Thank y'all so much for joining me on this journey. See you next week for Fast Color. There Sean gets involved with. Um, just showing us some really great. Oh my God. As I told you, I'm at my mom's house. She still has a home phone. And the home phone is fucking ringing. Just give it a second. Just give it a second. It's a telemarketer because who the fuck uses a home phone number anymore? Uh, 
Lord. Oh, it's over. Great.